You're listening to Rivercast, brought to you by River of Life Church in Gilderlin, New York. Now here's Pastor Sean. Well, I need to take a little survey this morning, and I do this occasionally, so this is a very unofficial, officially unofficial survey. How many of you have ever watched a movie that had like an alternate reality? So like maybe a multi-universe, like you've heard of a universe, you know, kind of a unified, like your version of reality, and then there's like a multiverse. There's like the possibility of another you. Could you imagine that? Like there, there's two of you? Oh my goodness, one is enough. You know, I can't imagine two, but how many of you ever watched a movie with like alternate re- okay so there's enough of you sci-fi superhero nerdy weird people out there to kind of get this all right so here's the deal the bible pulls the curtain back often on a second universe that we don't really realize the world that we live in that we see and breathe and all the laws of physics and the laws of gravity and the things that we're used to every day We go on about our life and think that this is all there is. But the Bible oftentimes pulls the curtain back and gives us this glimpse of a God in heaven, of angelic beings, of demonic beings, of a completely alternate world. Not an alternate you. There's not a double of you in heaven. We're not getting into that weirdness, okay? Any kind of weird stuff. But it gives us a glimpse of a completely different reality that's going on around us that we don't know and understand. That's why we can read like in the book of Jude when the Bible says is that Michael and uh, was fighting, you know, with the enemy, with Satan over the body of Moses. Like, what in the world is that all about? It's why we look at the book of Revelation, the being a revealing, a pulling of the curtain back of what's going on. It's crazy. It's why we can look at the book of Daniel when God was dispatching Michael to come and help. And he's like, I'd have been here three weeks sooner. I'd have been here sooner, except I got hindered by the prince of Persia. There was this battle, this spiritual battle that's going on. And we get these views. Isaiah, when he is uh, is called, he's like, I, I saw the Lord. He was high and lifted up, and I saw him all of his glory. And we just get these glimpses of this other world that really, even as though as followers of Jesus, we read about these things and we experience God in our heart through through our salvation, they're still kind of like beyond us. It's kind of like out there a bit, and it's hard to wrap our minds and our hearts around. Well, this morning, I'm going to talk to you about the side of salvation that's in that other universe. Usually, we spend 90% of our time talking about what Jesus did, what He did on the cross. Our response to that is to turn from our sins and to believe in Him, to put our faith and our trust and to surrender our life to Him. And then, you know, we spend our life worshiping Him and honoring Him. But there is another dimension to our salvation that we don't often talk a lot about it, not so much because we're not interested in it, and it's just the Bible doesn't always pull the curtain back. There's often things going on in here. In fact, you read the book of Hebrews, and the Bible says that Jesus was sacrificed on this earth based on the model of the real temple that's in heaven. Like, what in the world is that all about? You know, so the, there's pictures and things that are here that are actually a picture of the reality. Well, this morning, Paul is kind of pulling the curtain back 
on our salvation, about what it means for you and for me to, to surrender our life to Jesus and put our faith and trust in Him. And He's not talking about the stuff that we know about, the stuff that we do, the stuff that we experience. He's actually talking to us about the stuff that God did and the things that God does in heaven. And that gets kind of heady. That kind of gets actually at times difficult to think about. The, the sovereignty of God in the world around us. You know that God is large and in charge of everything in the world. We sing about that this morning, that He is in control of that. We like to, as Christians, to think about it when it's convenient for us. Kind of when we're like, we, we're helpless, we're like, I don't know where this is going to go, I just got to trust God that He's in control. Like, it's helpful in those situations. But we struggle as Christians to really accept it when things aren't going so well, we're like, why is God not doing a better job? Why is God not taking care of this? Why doesn't God love me? Why am I going through this such a hard time? Like, this is not right. We like this idea of sovereignty of God when things look good, but when things don't look so good, we don't like it so much. And it's so interesting. Even people who do not claim to be Christians, who don't go to church, who aren't followers of Jesus, they actually spend time thinking about this. I don't know if you ever thought about it or not, but when things go you know, bad, they're, kind of, they're looking kind of for a scapegoat. They're looking for somebody to blame. Like, why did God let this happen? If God was good, you know, they're actually thinking about the, the bigger picture, about that side of the universe, about how God is in charge. And so we're going to kind of dive into this this morning about how God really works in our salvation in ways that we are, they're invisible to us, that we are not aware of, that we were not consulted with, that we don't know anything about, except that, that the Bible just kind of pulls that veil back. Now, this is an area of Scripture that sometimes people get... I've seen people get challenged over this. I've seen people almost rabid, like frothing at the mouth, debating, you know, over these things. And if you've been a Christian very long in different churches, you've probably been in churches and heard sermons or people teach completely opposite in these things. And I just, I want us to say this morning as a guys, we're going to, we as a church are just, we're going to do our very best to always land on the side of the Bible. I know that's kind of sounds like super spiritual and high road, but I kind of really mean it. Like, that's what we're trying to do. We're, we don't, you know, as pastors, we're not thinking like, well, what's a particular church tradition that we need to follow and match? What are, what's our heritage? What are we trying to, you know, agree with, with this other group or this other kind of thing? Like, no, usually whenever there's a difficult choice of understanding Scripture, the best thing to do is just kind of read the Scripture and take the most natural sense of what it's saying. And if you've got to do, I call it like mental gymnastics, if you kind of have to do a bunch of loop-de-loops to kind of come up with a conclusion to make yourself more comfortable with what something says, you probably got the wrong interpretation. You know, it's like as difficult as a topic might be to accept and as difficult as it might be like, yeah, I don't know if that's really what I practice. But the plainest, most just the simple explanation of what it's saying is usually the best. So this morning, this is not a... Sometimes we run into Scripture, and I bump into this sometimes, like, a well, this is a Ford versus a Chevy versus a Toyota. You know, well, our, our church, I grew up believing this about this, and well, I went and I believe this about this. And sometimes I almost think as Christians we can 
you know, we value the different people and pastors that have taught us and we respect them and the teachers we've had and, and we kind of don't want to, you know, disrespect anybody. So we just kind of chalk it up to picking a different kind of car, you know, or a different color of the house or different shade of white. Who knew there were so many shades of white and just gray, like gray is gray and white is white, you know, and like, oh my goodness, I would never be an interior designer or decorator. This is not that even. We just want to look and see what Scripture teaches and what it says. So read with me, if you would. That's all my backdrop for you. Multiverse, alternate realities, and uh, picking Fords and Chevys this morning when it comes to our salvation. Read with me the first few verses of Romans 9. Bible says this. Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. Well, thank you, Paul, for not lying. We appreciate that. But it's just his way of saying like, hey, this is, this is getting really serious here. Listen to this. He says, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. It's like, I just, I just have such an anguish that I cannot get over the sorrow. I'm heavy. Here's why. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul said, I could, I could wish myself to go to hell, be separated from all of the salvation that God has given me through Jesus for the sake of my brothers and sister, my Jewish bloodline family to be saved. Now, I got to tell you, I love people, but... I'm not sure I love very many people like that. To be really honest with you, Paul is just such an anguish of heart for their salvation. But the plot thickens. Listen to what he says in verse 4. He says, they are Israelites. And here's the blessings. Read these blessings belong to them. And to them belong adoption. God adopted them as a people. The glory, God's glory revealed. The covenants, all of the agreements that God made with people belong to them. Giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, all the fathers who taught them well. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed for every man. It's like the Jewish people have all of the privilege, all of the opportunity, all of the spiritual blessings and yet most of them don't know Jesus. Most of them today are not going to heaven. Most of them are lost, even though they're the adopted people of God. Now that ought to make some of us just like, whoa, people could go believe in God and go to church all the time, but not really be God's children. That's what Paul is saying. So he goes a little bit deeper. For it is not as though the word of God has failed. So what's the problem? If most of God's people really are not following God, what's the problem? Is God messed up? Has God not explained things well? Is God weak? That's not the problem. It's not the word of God that's failed. For He explains it. For not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. In other words, not everybody because they are physically of Israel means that they are spiritually of Israel. Just because that they might be born into a family, born into a particular race, doesn't automatically make them the people of God. That reality is today. Just because you were born into a family that's very religious and you're a great-grandmother and grandmother and mother, and you go to the same church and you've done it all of your life, and you go to that church and believe in God, that doesn't make you a follower of Jesus any more than it does all of these people. These had even more blessings than you. 
There's a spiritual life, that birth that has to happen in your heart. And he explains this. He says, it's not those that are the offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. In other words, through your son, others are going to become adopted in your family. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise, the promise of salvation, are counted as offspring. Just because you were born into a family that believed God doesn't make you a believer of, of Jesus, but you have to be born in spiritually into that family, counted into that. Now hang with me. Verse 9, For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election, here's the hard part, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have I've loved, but Esau I have hated. Let me pause there. So first thing I want us to recognize this morning is that our salvation is all of God. It's 100%. It's all of God and not, not us. What Paul is unpacking for us, he says, how in the world did the people of God who were chosen as a nation, who were revealed the laws, who were given all of the wonderful promises that God revealed His glory and did all of the miracles and all of these blessings, even through their family, that He sent the Messiah. He sent the Savior of the world who was God of the universe and died for them. How is it possible that they didn't get it? How is it possible that the majority of them are not true believers and followers of, of, of the, the Messiah? How are they not really followers of God? Is somehow God weak in all of this? And Paul says, no. He says, we need to realize that in the middle of that whole family, there were individuals that he loved and individuals that the Bible says he hated. That he elected and chose some, and he refused to choose others to salvation. Now, we get some of us start squirming at this. Some of us are like, yeah, this is what the Bible says. And some of you are like, I don't know if I'm comfortable with this. Just hang on. Don't get nervous. We'll walk through all of it together. But what is an election? When you go to the vote, you know, to vote for somebody, you are choosing a person and you are not choosing another person, right? It means you are making a choice. Your decision, what you want to do. I took one of my daughters to buy a car. There were three particular makes and model where, where she was buying it at the dealer, that car, and she chose that one and not those two. Now, she had reasons for it and all of that I won't get into, but there was a choice that was made. And so what Paul is saying is that long before either of these two, Jacob and Esau, were born, before either one of them had a chance to even take a breath on their own, before they had a chance to grow up and to do things, to obey or disobey mom and dad, before they had a chance to go to church, if you will, before they had a chance to live or not live as good neighbors or as bad neighbors, before they had done any of that stuff, God, because of the purpose of election, He said, the older is going to serve the younger. What's crazy about this is that breaks all culture. In, in Jewish culture, 
You know, the oldest had the birthright. The oldest child was the one that had that special place, had the double portion. If inheritance time came around when mom and dad died, the oldest son got double what the other sons did. Like it, don't like it, that was customary. You know, it was just normal. But God said, I'm reversing the water flow. The younger one is going to be the one who's going to receive the blessing. The younger one's the one that's going to serve. And the whole purpose of this is not based on what they do in life. It's not based on who they are. It's not based on what they will do. It's not based on what they will become. It's clearly based on my choice, my election, my purpose, my reasoning, my thinking, my goals, God is saying, not based on anything with them whatsoever. Now, sometimes people try to explain this simple teaching of Scripture away. We'll say, well, back in Romans chapter 8, Sean, the Bible says, you know, for those whom God foreknew, He predestined, and those He predestined, He called. Like there's a series of salvation. And that foreknew means that God kind of looked down through the tunnel of time, and He knew ahead of time how Jacob and Esau were going to live. Because guys, God lives outside of time. He is boundless. He is, he's not bounded by anything. So he li- yesterday, today, and forever the same. And so he looked down the tunnel of time, some would say, and he knew that Jacob would be the one that would flourish. And so he saw what Jacob would do one day, and so he elected Jacob back here. Well, folks, that's just that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says is that God chose him based on his own purposes, not based on anything that they would do or any of that, just clearly on himself. And we don't, we don't like that reality, but that is what it is nonetheless. In fact, it's so interesting that God didn't even bother to ask Jacob and Esau's mom what she thought. She, he just told her in verse 12, here's what's going to happen. You know, how often has God really consulted with you what you really, you know, has God ever called you up or in a prayer, you know, so what do you think I should do in this situation? You know, what, what would you like to happen? What should, you know, what, what, God doesn't work that way, does He? He doesn't with me. So does He with any of you guys? If He, if he does, I want to know, you know. And I want to become your best friend so I can maybe get some things worked out. God doesn't work that way. He works independently of us. And what God is doing that's a challenge to us, just as your brain, if you watch some of those movies, you get into like these multiple universes. Some of them can twist your brain up a little bit. And, and this kind of gets us all twisted. But God is telling us what He does in heaven based on His choices and His doing, not based on our thinking whatsoever. Now, one other thing that people use kind of a mental gymnastic, theological gymnastics to kind of dis, to put this aside is to say, well, God was just choosing the Jewish nation as a people, but He wasn't choosing individuals out of that. In other words, God was choosing a class of people, but election doesn't apply to individuals. Sean, are you trying to tell me that God looks down in heaven and He sees us all? You know, if He could put all the... If we could... You know, how many How many of you guys, I should say ladies because we don't want to be misogynistic, so maybe this is you ladies too, but how many of you have, you know, in your garage, tub of like screws and odds and nuts and bolts and like everything under the sun? How many, be honest, yeah. I can usually, there's a woman, I love it. So I can usually find something in there that I need. So it's like, don't mess with my mess. Like it's in here. And I go scrounge it and I find it and it saves me a trip to, to Lowe's. 
So does God like put everybody into the tub and just all these people and he picks out a few and he saves them and he's going to do his thing and he just leaves the rest of their own devices. That's what this passage is saying. That's exactly what it's saying, why it's hard for people, it's hard for us at times to explain. And so some people to kind of deal with it, they'll just be like, well, God was just choosing the Jews as a chunk of people. He just kind of drew a big circle and like made them the people that he'd bring the Messiah through, and then later on he'd make salvation for everybody. That sounds good, but it's kind of gymnastics because the example that Paul is giving is two people. <laughs> Two twin brothers, choosing one, not the other. Then later on in the passage, I didn't read it, but Paul even expands this because he starts like he does talking to the Jews and he expands it and he says, hey, by the way, he says, this is not only the Jews only, but also the Gentiles that he's done this with. And he says, us. He's talking about individuals and people, not classes, not big groups, individuals taking them from this bucket and putting them to that one. So we have real difficulty with this reality. And I'm glad that Paul addresses two or three of the big ones because right off the bat, Paul is like, is God not fair? That's what he says in verse 14, right? Some of you are thinking that. Like, how is that fair? How could God choose some and not others? Well, that's. I'm glad you asked the question. Look what verse 14 says. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is God not a fair God? How can God be equitable? How can that be just for Him to choose some individuals and not others? Doesn't that make God evil? You see, in our thinking, in our world, that's bad, right? We, we want everybody to have the exact same opportunity, everybody to have the exact same of everything. And we think that that can be achieved. It, it truly can't in reality. But God is not worried about that. He's not thinking in that way whatsoever. He says, the Bible goes on, he says, no, by no means. God's absolutely fair. He's just. You're trying to solve something that's not a reality in God's universe. It's only a reality in our universe. It's like God is absolutely just. There is no injustice with him. In verse 15, he says, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. We don't like this, but you know what God is saying? Like when we were teenagers and we went to mom and dad, why do I have to do that? And mom and dad said, because I said so. That's what that verse is saying. I'm going to do it this way because I do it this way because I have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'm not because I'm not, because I'm God and you're not. We don't ever like that answer as kids, and we don't like it as adults. But that's what he says. So then it depends in verse 16, not on human will or exertion. In other words, our salvation isn't because we willed it or we did something to make it happen. I read the Bible and made it happen. I worked at it and made it happen. doesn't depend on that. It depends on God who has mercy. It depends completely on Him. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, we've got to do another Old Testament. Understand this, you kind of have to understand the Old Testament stories, but it says with Pharaoh, For this purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. 
So then he has mercy on whomever he wills. It's his choice. Whatever his reasons are are his reasons, not based on our exertion or what we do or anything, but what he does. And he hardens whomever he wills. You know the story of God bringing the Jews out of Egypt, that God sent Moses to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, nothing doing. I like free slave labor. I want to build my great nation. I'm not going to let you go. And then so God every time would send plagues and along the way. And the Bible says, you know, in there that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then later on, there's ten of these, you know, just wham, wham, wham. Some of us are more hard-headed than others. And then eventually the Bible says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart, and God then hardened his heart. Well, how is that fair? And the answer is, is that because God is God, who rules and oversees this whole creation, can do this. You see, somehow we think that we're all born into this neutral bucket, and that everybody has you know, the avenue of... of following God. And that somehow down the line, we just make bad choices and become bad. Or that we make good choices and we become good. That's kind of the backdrop of most of our thinking. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Remember when we talked about the free frauds, the splat, you know? We're all born into the middle of that. We are, we are all born into the negative bucket against God, darkened in our understanding, all sinners by nature and by choice. And so God just said, well, I'm going to make sure I rescue some of these souls. I'm going to save some. And He chooses those that He had mercy, and those that didn't are left to their own hardness of their heart. And in Pharaoh's case, God took someone that was hard, and by all the circumstances... It hardened him even more. Think about it this way. I don't know if any of you have ever... I've never forged anything. I've never taken steel and forged, you know, made knives or anything like that. Some of you might have. It's kind of cool. But there's, a, there's this whole process that when you heat up steel and get it really hot, you can stick it down in like an oil or a water. It's called quenching. And there's some sort of chemical... I don't know. I'll let the chemistry person in the room explain the, the science people on this. I don't know if it's a chemical exchange or transaction. There's some fancy names for it. But it hardens it, and it makes the steel even harder. Well, here's what God did with Pharaoh. Pharaoh is already hard. Steel, compared to your thumbnail, even if it's a soft steel, is hard. You know, hit somebody over the head with it. You're probably going to knock them out and kill them, even if it's soft steel. And so it's not that Pharaoh's heart was this really soft, he was about to become a follower of Jesus, and God came and punched him in the face, and because of that, that God knocked him out and he can't ever be saved. No, he was born with his heart hardened away from God. And in circumstances, God allowed his heart, got even harder, and all of those things. And God did it so he could show his glory even more. Pharaoh became the black velvet to show off the diamond, that God's grace and his mercy and his salvation could be shown even more. And God is just in that because he's God. If you. If you have any kind of thing, I don't care if you have animals that you raise, if you, have, if you collect rocks, if you collect china, you're okay to take whatever it is that you made and throw some away and keep some. 
to say, I'm going to keep this, but not that. They belong to you. You are sovereign over them and you have them. And God is doing the same in our lives. And he's still a just God in the middle of that. Second objection that we come up with. Well, if that's reality, and that if people ultimately that pay for their sins eternally in hell and people that aren't saved, is it must be God's fault? Well, it's not their fault. God just didn't save them. He left them. So why is God finding them? Why is God punishing them for their sins? That's the next objection. Verse 19, he says, you'll say to me, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? In other words, it's not their fault. God just chose not to have mercy on them. It's not the, it's not the axe murderer's fault. God just didn't chose to reveal himself to them to save them. It's not the hardened criminal's fault. It's not their fault that they've sinned. God just didn't make them a child of God. And the Bible makes it very clear that no, we are responsible for God or for our, ourselves. We're responsible for our actions. It's not God's fault. He says in verse 20, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? See, it's okay to ask God questions, but it's not okay to question God. There is a difference, right? You know with your kids, parents in the room, you can tell when your kid is asking you questions versus questioning you. And it's okay to ask God sincere questions. But we're getting a pushback here to say, yeah, you really shouldn't be questioning God. Yeah, this is hard stuff to handle. It's hard to handle. But God is still still God, and we're still responsible for this. He goes on and says, Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have I made you like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable? What if God desiring to show His wrath to make known His power is endured with much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He's prepared for beforehand? It's... He says, look, we are res- each person is responsible for their sin, it's their choices. In other words, put it plainly, people end up being punished forever, separated from God, not because of God. It's not God's fault. It's our own, it's people's fault because of their sin. We are responsible. When someone is, in- is incarcerated, they're put in jail for, for something that they did wrong, if there's a, 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 they drive drunk and they've killed somebody, and there's a punishment there, or somebody committed murder, it's not the judge's fault to say, who said, you know what, I sentence you according to the law, X number of whatever days or years or whatever the sentence might be. It's not the judge's fault. It's the person's fault. God is our judge who looks at our lives and we get punished ultimately for our sins and all that we do wrong. And God along the way is saying, you know what? You all deserve that. You all are guilty. But I'm going to make sure that there's some of you that are going to experience forgiveness and grace and salvation. And you don't deserve it, but pulling the curtain back into the multiverse, you know, God's universe, not ours. We don't see this. If the Bible hadn't have told us this, we would have never even thought this was a thing. But God said, I'm choosing to make sure, because ultimately none of you would have ever figured this out 
You can't have enough thinking power. You can't have enough exertion. You can't share the gospel well enough to help somebody. Like It's not possible. We can't jump out of that bucket and into salvation, into the salvation bucket. God has to reach down and do something in our, our lives. When I was early and young and just first in ministry, you know, I've spent my whole life teaching, teaching spiritual things. You know, even when I've taught a good bit in Bible colleges and would teach Greek, and whenever I would have a student who was just struggling with trying to understand things, I would double down. I would try to say it differently, you know, and try to figure out what they were having trouble with and explain it. And I used to think that, well, man, I, if somebody's not trusting Jesus, I need to just explain it a little bit more. You know, if they're struggling to, to learn their one, two, threes or their ABCs or their E to write, I just need to give them a little extra attention, a little extra tutoring. But you know something, folks? That won't cut it for a lot of people because the issue is not an education issue. The issue ultimately in, in the universe is God's like, they're not going to get it because we are all in, born into that free fall until God reaches down and, and saves us and moves us out from that. And so we don't like this because we think it makes somehow God not fair, that God's not good, or somehow we think that God becomes responsible for people not being saved, and the Bible makes that clear that that's not reality. And we don't like it because somehow we think that it means that, that there are people out there that can't be saved. And here's the way in my world that this works. I've gotten a glimpse into this universe, and I understand this universe is real, and I want to accept it as much as that God has revealed it to me that my brain can get wrapped around it. But then I also get up in the morning, and I live in this universe. And in this universe, the gospel always gets shared with everybody. And nowhere does Jesus say, you know, he doesn't, when a, well, think about it this way. When Paul was there with the Philippian jailer, he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Paul didn't say, well, it depends. Are you one of the elect or not? You know, are you in the bucket that God decided to save or not? He didn't dance around. I was like, hey, you can be saved, but believe. Here's what you got to do. Jesus came. He commanded men everywhere. He said, repent and believe the gospel. Paul said, I become all things to all men that by means I might save some. In other words, we ought to go into our day thinking that there's not a person on this planet that can't be saved. And we know that in the grand scheme of things that God is working and has done what He's going to do, but that's His business. And that's His world. We don't live in that world. We live in this world and our job is to share the gospel with everybody, live in a way that everybody can believe. And we recognize that there will be many. In fact, if we're really taking Scripture honestly. Most won't believe, but there will be some that will. And so I don't walk around you know, saying, well, there's a bunch of people that can't be. Because that is God's world and God's business. My job is to go out and to, to share the gospel. And the other reason that we don't like it is we think that somehow it keeps people like, you know, there's just all these people that will never have hope. And in my world, everybody has hope. Just turn and believe. Turn and believe. But the second thing, and I think this is really why people as Christians struggle with this, is we don't like not being in control. We hate it a lot. More than we realize. We just do not like being in control. And this, what this passage is telling us is that we're not the captain of our own fate, you know, the master of our own destiny. And that if you have a relationship with Jesus, it's not because of who you are or what you've done or anything. 
It's completely what God has done. We don't like thinking that we can't have control when we go and speak to you know, our loved ones, our friends, or our neighbors. We want to somehow interject and get control and make things happen in that world. And we've got none. This says it's totally all of God. But we can't ignore what the simple teaching of Scripture is as we just walk through this based on our mental problems, based on our heart issues. We have to take it at its word. So let me move on and let me camp out here. We've been kind of hiking this mountain a little bit. It's a little bit tedious along the way, but I want to enjoy the view from the top. I love to hike and I'm all about the view because the bugs and the sweating and all along the way, you know, there's some obstacles and rivers to cross. Hopefully we've crossed some of those. But I want to talk about the good part now that we're at the top. So Paul is doing this not to torture us. Paul is actually telling us this to strengthen our faith. None of us should walk out of here saying, oh my goodness, maybe I'm not the elect. Like that should, not be, that should not be a thought that goes into our brain. Nowhere in Scripture are we told this. In fact, one of the challenges we need to be careful is why a lot of people, even who finally be- who believe these things, they become prideful, they become arrogant, they feel like they've got this secret knowledge or something along the way, and they get fighting and debating over all these things. And mistakes that people make is they will take a basic teaching of Scripture and they'll take one more step. And they'll take one more step. And they come to these other conclusions that are not of God whatsoever. And so we should not be arrogant in this. And instead, it should actually be something that causes in our heart and mind a great sense of security. God doesn't mean this to scare us. He's actually trying to tell us to give us a confidence and a boldness and a strength. All right. So think about it this way. How long could you grab a hold of a bar and just hold it? I don't mean chin-ups and pull-ups and all of that, but just hang from that bar. Could Could you do it for a minute? Some of you could, some of you couldn't. Some of you stronger, could you do it five minutes? Did you do it for an hour? Five hours? Eventually you're going to let go, right? I don't care how shape you are, you're going to get tired, you're, you're going to let go. And there's a pit of voracious hungry piranha just waiting to chomp at your toes just the moment you fall in. So your whole life is dependent on you holding on. And the second you let go, you're a goner. What this is saying is, is that our salvation is not based on our strength. It's based on God's strength. And we don't ever have to be afraid of God's strength. That God did something long ago to secure our salvation and made it real. It's meant to actually give us a tremendous amount of comfort, of, of, of encouragement, of confidence in our life, that our salvation, like it's not, it's meant to move even beyond, like, well, I don't know if I have faith today. Do I have enough faith? Do I have enough of this? And like to get us out of all that and say, wait a minute, I trust Jesus and He's done all the work. I'm not hanging from the bar. He's the one who's got me. It's all in Him. It's meant to give us a confidence, not to give us fear, not to give us doubt or pride or any of that. It's meant to embolden us. It's meant to cause in our heart an incredible amount of appreciation and humility to God. Thank the God of heaven that He could have just left us. To deserve this. If this doesn't humble you, this is not because you think you're a nice guy or a nice woman. This is not because you 
just think that you're special or that you're just a nice person and you're going to somehow get it. You're following God and you're doing well and you're at least average or better than those. No, there's nothing about you that made God want to save you. Nothing, not one thing, not one. I remember when I was a kid, my parents, my grandparents had a farm, kind of a country farm in Florida. And I remember one flood, there was a pond there that we used to fish and had a lot of bass and bluegill, that thing in it. And there was a, it flooded and, and just the, the, just, we got so much water and it just ran out hundreds of yards and, you know, through a valley into another area. And then when the water subsided, some of these huge fish got caught, you know, and they couldn't get back to the pond and they were going to die. And I remember trying to save them, you know, my, my grandfather, my uncle, my dad, and that kind of thing. God could have just not saved us, but He did. And it's not based on our worthiness or value or anything, but based on what He did. That ought to humble us which is where we ought to be, not prideful. It ought to give us such an appreciation that God, oh my goodness, God could have just have easily passed over me and gone somewhere else. If that, if that thought, that's not to cause, again, fear in our heart. That's to say, God, thank you. That's to put everything in our world into perspective. Sometimes we think, well, God, why haven't you done this? Why haven't you done this? God, why aren't you doing this for me, doing that? And God's like, Seriously? Do you realize what I did for you? <laughs> Do you realize like the hell that I delivered you from? And you're going to complain and be bothered about this? Wow. Right? It's, it's to put us kind of in an appreciation, to put us into reality around us. That's why God's telling us this, is to humble us, to give us a thanksgiving in our heart and some of the most incredible moments of just love. And I'm just like, God, thank you that you saved me. And it just snaps me into a reality around me and just helps me to kind of realize like, wow, no matter what's going on, God has amazingly done things in my life. And so that's what God means to encourage us, to strengthen us, to embolden us. He also means it to embolden our evangelism. Remember all of this? Paul said, look, I could wish myself to go to hell for the sake of all of my brothers, but I can't. You see, this should break our heart for the lost. It shouldn't embolden us. I've heard, I've heard of pastors. I've never heard one actually say this, but you know, would sit in their office like, well, if anybody's going to be saved, then they can come in here and be saved. God's either done the election or not. Like, that's the stupidest thing in the world. What in the world are you talking about? That's like you sitting on your couch and not even throwing seeds out the window. Like, well, if God's predestined the tomatoes are going to grow there in my garden this year, then He's going to predestine. So I guess I'm just going to sit here and watch TV. Like, it's just dumb. Remember, this is God's world. We don't live in that world. We live in this world. And in this world, God said, go out and share the gospel. Jesus said, go out in the highways and the byways and compel them to come in. The reason we do it and actually should give us confidence in salvation that people are going to be saved, that they're going to be those that respond. Sometimes people like don't want to believe in this because they're like, somehow, well, why do we share the gospel? Because God said so. He said, go out and do it. It actually gives us encouragement. We are going to be successful. No, we're not going to bat a thousand. We're not going to 10 out of 10 every time we share the gospel, see somebody saved. It will be the minority, not the majority. But no matter how many times you've looked at your co-workers and struggle, thinking like, these people don't care, they can't ever be saved. Yeah, that was you once upon a time. 
And God still did it. And He saved you. And He can save them too. So don't doubt that. It should actually give you a confidence. And by the way, don't forget, there are people walking around today in the United States who are millionaires who mess up two-thirds of the time or more. In baseball, if you hit the ball one-third of the time, you're considered a, a good batter. Like you can make millions of dollars doing that. And you fail two-thirds of the time. So we actually have to recalibrate our thinking a little bit when we're trying to reach people. You're not going to see the majority, but we will see some. And it should embolden us with that. And then final thing with this is that ultimately this evangelism is really in our universe is what changes the game in the world around us. Here's what I mean by that. I don't know if it'll be on the screen or not, but let me read it to you. The Bible goes on, and I don't, we don't have time to read the rest of the chapter. I've really tried to just focus on the priority of it, but he, the Bible gives a lot more examples here, and it says this in verse 29, And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, in other words, had he made sure that there weren't people that were going to be saved, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. If this teaching were not true, we would be living in Sodom and Gomorrah today. Now, I know some of you are like, Sean, we're pretty much there. Yeah, no, not yet. You might be watching a little bit too much TV, a little bit too much gloom and doom. Yeah, it's not good. I get it. I know I'm living in that world too, and I see it too. But go back and read Sodom and Gomorrah and kind of see where they were. They were still a couple of steps further along than we are. Here's what this is saying. You know what keeps our world from falling apart? It's not political activism by the church. It's God's work in heaven in His universe, bringing grace into people's lives to change, bring people out of that free-for-all, that free-fall and the splat. And our side of it, it's sharing the gospel and ministering and talking to people about that. If you really want to change the world that we live in, the country in which we live, the community in which we live, yes, we should pray, but we should share the gospel. It's not complaining won't get it done. Political activation won't get it done. The Bible makes it really clear that we would all be in this world of mess, Sodom and Gomorrah. You come back and read the story of just the sexual identity and all of the mess of the debauchery that the world was in. And this whole dynamic of God's world election and in our world sharing the gospel and believing, that's what keeps this world afloat. That's what keeps this world from sinking into all of the mire and all of the mess. And if we really believe that as churches and as Christians, wouldn't we open our hearts and our lives and our mouths and talk to people around us? If we really believe these truths, like, you know what? I'm going to go out and find one of these people, and I'm going to share the gospel with them and help them to be saved. In our universe, they're just waiting on us. In God's universe, God's like, I've done all the work. I'm waiting on you to go do something. So this teaching, folks, should get our head right. It should get our heart right. It should get our life right and how we relate to everybody around us. And it's not meant to be a theological debate that people get all 
frothy at the mouth and upset and angry and irritated about and all these differences of opinions, like the Scripture is pretty clear as you just walk through it. So where are you in all of this? And your world, have you surrendered your life to Jesus? Because we started this whole thing out is all the people that were going to church in the Old Testament, they really weren't followers of God. That ought to scare us that even if your family and friends go to church, doesn't mean that they know Jesus. Doesn't mean that they're saved. It, it, takes, it takes what God did, pulling the curtain back, but it takes us responding to Him by putting our faith and trust in Jesus who died on the cross. So maybe you need to take that step of faith and surrender to Him. Maybe you need to be the person who shares that and says, hey, what about you? Maybe you need to be the one in your heart to be humbled and more appreciative of what God has done and not looking around and like, well, why don't I have that? And I wish I could have this and I want to do this. And why isn't God letting me do it? And acting like we're poor, you know, pulling our pockets out and empty. And God's like, what? I, do, you, do you not know what I did for you? Maybe you just need to share some appreciation and humility with God this morning. I don't know. But these truths are to give us a confidence in our salvation and a confidence in the work of God around us. And it should embolden us. So this Memorial Weekend, I'm going to leave it with you and with God to how you respond to what He's written for us. It's for our good. So let me pray for you, all right? Father, thank You for the Lord Jesus who died for us. Lord, these teachings I know get debated and... and uh, Father, I feel like most of the debate, and there's even if I've, I've, I've listened to some guys that I agree with, but their heart's been wrong in it. And just the arrogance and the pride and the, I just, Lord, it's not good and not healthy. Help us to be your children who just simply believe what you've taught us and to live that out in our heart and our attitude, our faith, and to live that way, Lord, that is honoring to you. And Lord, I pray that you would use us as a church to be that salt and light in our community and our workplaces. Lord, you've scattered people all in this room, all throughout the capital region, in their jobs, in their neighborhoods, in their interests. And you've done it because you want people to see and to hear the gospel in real life. Most people will never walk into this church, but they walk into our lives every single day Help us to be the church for them, I pray, Father, in light of these truths. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.